You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So, a few years ago, in uh, spring of 2011, I was invited to the White House Conference on Bullying, where the president spoke and the first lady spoke. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a large gathering. There are hundreds of us in the East Room listening to the remarks of the president and the first lady uh, about bullying. And this was in the wake of uh, September 2010, all those suicides uh, among queer youth and, you know, our creation of the It Gets Better Project, uh, mine and Terry's, uh, and everyone who participated. The It Gets Better Project is a collective creation of all participants, not just us. And I'm sitting there in the East Room listening to the president and speaker after speaker, beginning with the president and the first lady, kept saying – they rose each one and said this is something that parents, preachers and teachers need to work on. The bullying, parents, parents, preachers, teachers and parents, particularly parents, parents, parents need to speak up, need to do something about bullying. And I'm sitting there dying inside, actually sitting next to Al Franken, dying inside and elbowing him in the ribs. And and I keep saying, parents are often the first and worst bullies. And I, if I'd been a younger man, maybe, if I had still been act up era Dan Savage, I might have jumped up and interrupted the president. But I waited politely for the breakout session uh, where I was on a small panel with, uh, I think, Arnie Duncan and I blew up and it was like, parents, we have to start talking about the fact that parents are often the worst and most destructive bullies when it comes to queer kids. Somebody who's bullied at school because of his race or her religion, they go home to parents almost invariably of the same race, same religion, who they can turn to for support, who they can expect as a matter of course their support, if their passive support, just they exist and there they are and they made it and I'll make it, or their active support. If you're being bullied at school because of your race or your religion, the odds that your parents will blow into that school and start kicking down doors and screaming and yelling are really high. But the queer kid, the lesbian kid, the gay kid, the bi kid, the transgender kid, all too often goes home to parents who are also bullying them. And this is not just anecdotal. This is borne out by the stats. 40% of homeless youth, homeless young adults, homeless high school and middle school age kids are queer kids who were thrown out of the house after they came out or were outed to their families or their families simply suspected that they might be queer. 40% queer kids make up, depending on whose estimates you believe, far less than 10% or 5% or even 3% of the population, but 40% of the homeless youth. A study by the Williams Institute found that families that are hostile, a queer kid with hostile parents, not beating them up, not throwing them out, merely hostile, that kid is at eight times greater risk of suicide. The average queer kid at four times greater risk of suicide. Family hostility doubles that already quadrupled risk of suicide. Eight times greater risk of suicide. Parents are often, for queer kids, the worst and most destructive bullies. And we had a sad and tragic example of that last week, December 28th, when Leela Elkhorn stepped in front of a truck on a highway and committed suicide. 
Elkhorn wrote an absolutely devastating suicide note that appeared on her Tumblr after her suicide. And it's really hard to read, uh, and it's really damning. And the people it damns the most are her own parents. She came out to them as transgender, and they refused to support her, and they did they did what I like to call everything wrong. They did everything religious conservative groups and organizations, leaders, quote-unquote, like Tony Perkins, urged the parents of queer kids to do. They refused to accept her. They bullied her. They shoved her into a reparative therapy program at her church. In her suicide note, Elkhorn says that her mother told her that she would never be a girl and that God doesn't make mistakes. And they pulled her out of school when – and they pulled her out of school after she came out as gay because she wanted to come out as something and wasn't yet ready to come out as trans for peers. Came out as gay. They pulled her out of school, began to homeschool her, cut her off from social media, took her phone away from her and isolated her in her home for months. Since age four, Leela Elkhorn had sensed that there was not something wrong but something up with her, that she didn't quite understand herself. She couldn't put it into words. And then – and I'm reading from her suicide note. When I was 14, I learned what transgender meant and cried of happiness. After 10 years of confusion, I finally understood who I was. I immediately told my mom and she reacted extremely negatively telling me that it was a phase, that I would never truly be a girl, that God doesn't make mistakes, and that I am wrong. If you are reading this, parents, please don't tell this to your kids. Even if you are Christian or against transgender people, don't ever say that to someone, especially your kid. That won't do anything but make them hate themselves. That's exactly what it did to me. My mom, Lila continues, started taking me to a therapist but would only take me to Christian therapists who are all very biased. So I never actually got the therapy I needed to cure me of my depression. I only got more Christians telling me that I was selfish and wrong and that I should look to God for help. Leela Elkhorn ends her suicide note with this. The only way I will rest in peace is if one day transgender people aren't treated the way I was. They're treated like humans with valid feelings and human rights. Gender needs to be taught about in schools. The earlier, the better. My death needs to mean something. My death needs to be counted in the number of transgender people who commit suicide this year. I want someone to look at that number and say, that's fucked up and fix it. Fix society, please. Goodbye, Leela Elkhorn. Leela Elkhorn signed her suicide note, Leela Josh Elkhorn with Josh struck out. Crossed out, a line through it. Leela Elkhorn's mother has gone on television and continued to refer to her daughter as her son, continued to refer to Leela as Josh, continued to misgender her, continued to deny Leela in death what she denied her, what her family denied her in life, which was just some fucking respect for who she was and who she knew herself to be. And, and here's this is what keeps hanging me up. You know, when you abuse your kids, your kids are taken from you. And... What we have here is a case where a trans kid, another queer kid, a trans kid, was abused by their family, abused to death by the first, worst, and often most destructive bullies in a queer kid's life, their own parents. At some point, we are going to have to start to recognize and respond to this kind of abuse, this kind of isolation, even if it has a religious justification, as abuse. 
We know this. We know these things. We know that family rejection doubles that already quadrupled risk of suicide. We know that rejecting your queer kids, forcing them into reparative therapy, which also increases a queer person's risks for suicide, is quackery, is abuse. Every mainstream mental health organization, APA, everybody else recognizes that reparative therapy is damaging and destructive. We know this. At a certain point, we have to start treating people, treating parents who do these sorts of things to their queer children as abusers. And it is a crime to abuse your child. The Christian therapists who practice their reparative quackery bullshit on Leela to such destructive ends also need to be held accountable. They should know better. They're quote-unquote professionals. And what they're doing puts the lives of young queer kids in jeopardy. We pull kids out of homes that are filthy. The authorities will sweep in and take kids out of homes when they don't think the parents are good enough at keeping the house clean. That Just general filth and uncleanliness can make a home unsafe for children. Children are taken out of those homes. Sometimes the parents are charged with child endangerment, neglect. If a child is injured or killed under those circumstances, manslaughter, reckless endangerment, those charges can be brought because people were doing what they knew or should have known to be dangerous. What they knew or should have known could harm their child or end their child's life. And we've reached a stage with LGBT youth that we now know what can harm or end that child's life. And it is exactly what Leela Alcorn's parents were doing to her. It is exactly what Leela Alcorn's Christian therapists were doing to her. They were recklessly endangering her life by bullying her, by refusing to accept her, by refusing to listen to her and offer her the support, to give her the support and understanding and love to which she was entitled. I jumped on Twitter as the Leela Elkhorn story was blowing up to say that I thought, and I still think, that Leela Elkhorn's parents should be charged, should be prosecuted. Leela Elkhorn's therapists should be identified and charged, malpractice at the very least, and prosecuted. And this must be addressed, it risks incentivizing suicide, that we, people who support queer kids. We don't want to communicate to them that we will pay attention when you harm yourself, only when you harm yourself. Or the quickest and easiest way to get revenge upon your family or the people tormenting you is to kill yourself. But in this instance, perhaps we should make an exception and really do something because it has to be understood by other parents that their religious freedom does not entitle them to torture their queer kids to death any more than your religious freedom entitles you to deny your child access to medical care. We don't let people do that. We prosecute people who deny their children medical care and pray over them faith healing style and watch them die. How is this any different? They were praying over this vulnerable, depressed, transgender child forcing her to pray, dragging her to Christian therapists, attempting to faith heal her, and she's dead. If it were leukemia, we would prosecute her parents. I'm not comparing being transgendered to having cancer or leukemia, but it seems to me that if we can prosecute parents for denying their child the health care that they need, 
when it's cancer, we can prosecute parents for denying their child the health care that they need when they're transgender. And Leela Elkhorn needed health care. She didn't need Christian therapists. She didn't need to be isolated by her family when she was already in a depressed state. She needed access to mental health services and the interventions that can save a young trans person's life. And she was denied those things because Jesus, because somebody loved the idea of their sex obsessed gender policing God more than they loved their own child. And that should be a crime. Okay. Before we get to the calls, this week's calls and this week's guests for any listeners out there, young listeners, listeners of any age who are trans, who may be feeling in despair. I want you to know about trans lifeline. It is a hotline staffed by transgender people for transgendered people and their numbers in the U S eight, seven, seven, five, six, five, eight, eight, six, Oh, and in Canada, 877-330-6366. Trans Lifeline. Okay, coming up on today's show, we have a lesbian mom with a gender nonconforming son who seems to be doing everything right, in my opinion. That's nice to see. She's on the micro. And coming up on the magnum, comedian Mike Berbiglia joins us in the studio to take some calls. And now, your calls. Hi, Dan. I am a married 26-year-old in Utah. I have been married for eight years, or been with my husband for eight years. We've been married for three. Um, In the beginning of our marriage, well, totally, I've never had an orgasm through sexual intercourse. He's got me off a few times using his hand and once orally. But he made a comment in the early beginning of our relationship, something along the lines of I was being weird because of it, and he's never had this issue with anybody else, so it made me really self-conscious. So I kind of just gave up and he gave up. Um, but I'm to the point now where I'm just so frustrated. I just, I'm sick of not trying and not trying different things. And I've read about it and it's not such an uncommon thing that I've heard of. Um, so I really wanted to talk to him and seeing ways to try and get me off and different things to do, which is a whole other issue on its own. I don't know what to do exactly. Um, so if you could just give me your input, I would really appreciate it. I'm really desperate at this point. He gets defensive every time I talk to him about it. Like there's really nothing he can do and it's a lot of work and his hand gets tired and just rather frustrating. So yeah. So here's my suggestion. The next time you're having sex with him, the sex you have where he always gets off, probably penis and vagina sex, the sex that he claims got every other girl he was ever with before you off without him having to exert any extra effort, uh, which is bullshit and impossible because 75% of women cannot climax through vaginal intercourse alone. So unless he won the lottery each and every time, which he didn't, he was with women who either couldn't climax that way or were faking it and allowed him to believe that they could climax that way. I don't know who's lying, all those women to him or him to you, but somebody's lying. The next time you're having that penis and vagina sex that gets him off – Get him almost there three quarters of the way and hop off him and say, oh, my pussy's tired. Just like your hand gets tired. My pussy got so tired and I'm not going to be able to keep fucking you. Sorry. Oh, you can go finish yourself. Here's your right hand. I'm going to go have some frozen yogurt and see how he reacts. See how he feels. Probably pretty bad. And actually, I don't know if I mean that that last bit of advice. I don't think you should do take that literally. I think that would be kind of shitty, but you might want to tell him that that's what you've thought about doing because what he's doing is 
kind of shitty. Oh, I would get you off. I would prioritize your pleasure and orgasms. My hand is so tired. Unlike your pussy, which never gets tired. My hand gets so tired. That's bullshit, excuse-making, shitty, inconsiderate, selfish, non-reciprocal lover crap. It's not lover. He He doesn't get to use lover to describe himself in those interactions. He's just a taker. Taking his pleasure off you and giving nothing in return and not putting in any effort. And yeah, maybe his hand does get tired and that's when he uses his tongue. And maybe when his tongue gets tired, he uses his hand. And I would encourage you both to go get a vibrator or four and incorporate those into your sessions so that he has a tool in his hand. So it isn't all his thumb having to go at some sort of miraculous speed that thumbs typically don't go at or his tongue that he can use a tool. And he still built that orgasm. We don't say to somebody, we look at a house they built and say, oh, you used a hammer. You didn't really build that house. The hammer built that house. We say, oh, awesome job. You used all the tools that are available to you to build that house, probably including a nail gun. A vibrator is the nail gun of orgasmic house construction, right? You give him a vibrator. He gave you the orgasm. That would be my advice for you. And I think you should stop putting up with this. And I think at a certain point you have a right to say, until we solve this problem, until we find a way to get me off to, I'm not sure that I'm in the business of getting you off right now. This has to be reciprocal. And you might want to tear your entire sex life down to the ground and start building from the ground floor up, which means taking all penetrative sex off the menu and just enjoying mutual masturbation together and learning how his dick works all over again and he can learn how your twat works all over again and you can start from the ground floor and work your way up. And I do think it is sometimes the case for some women that they require so much intense, prolonged, focused stimulation in order to come that it can be taxing for their male partner or their female partner or their some other point along the gender spectrum partner to give them what they need digitally, manually with their hands or their faces or their tongues. And if that's the case, that's when you bring a vibrator into play. That's when the person whose pussy is being stimulated takes some responsibility for it and discovers the grind that works for you, where you just don't lay back and let somebody play with your pussy, that your pussy jumps up and down and plays with that person. The same way he fucks you with that dick, you can fuck him with your pussy. You can move your pussy on against, across him in such a way that it gets you off and you can be the active partner as you push your pussy towards climax, using him as the six-foot-ish tall sex toy that he undoubtedly is. Hi, Dan. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm a 25-year-old straight male in California in a long-term relationship with my girlfriend of a year. Uh, when we began our relationship, she made it clear that at this point in her life, she would want uh, the next long-term relationship to have the possibility of being an open relationship. And I understood that. We are in our mid uh, to late 20s, and it's really cool to not rule anything out and be people who have major trust in each other and uh, want to have the chance to try things later on. Throughout the first year, there was no uh, action taking in that open relationship, just uh, talking and, uh, you know, Every four or five months, we'd bring up different points, maybe some rules that we wanted to implement. And uh, I think that overall, uh, despite it being kind of a new thing for both of us and there was some uncomfortable parts, I think it went well. Uh, I'm driving back home uh, from the airport right now where I dropped off my girlfriend to go home to her family on the East Coast for Christmas. 
uh, when we had talked about open relationship stuff beforehand, she had mentioned the fact of possibly sleeping with her ex-boyfriend, who she has remained close friends with. I've met him. He's nice. He's great. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, I had a couple different reactions. At first, I was kind of resistant. Uh, I took some time to think about it. It's a comfortable, familiar person. I know that nothing bad or weird would happen. And uh, so I uh, eventually said, okay. And then so that was about five months ago. And now the night before I took her to the airport, she, you know, let me know, yeah, you know, he's also going to be back on the East Coast uh, for Christmas with his family. And so we talked about it again, and she was not happy with how I responded. I just didn't really like being having it brought up again right before I took her, and I hadn't thought about it lately. I know that's kind of my bad. It's something I should be constantly thinking about. But uh, I just wanted your advice. Uh, we aren't, aren't and haven't been actively seeking out partners. There's no way we find uh, people we're interested in sleeping in. So this is kind of just like the exception to the rule. She has this person in her life that she wants to pursue this with. I don't. I told her, you know, with words that I'm comfortable, but she's not happy with my tone or reactions. So if you just let me know, uh, maybe give me some advice on how to handle the situation. Like I said, I said, okay. And uh, I hope that that's enough for her. I don't want her to lose out on an experience in life because of me when we really talked about it. And I feel like I gave her the answer that she should need. Thanks, Dan. Tone policing is one of those annoying things about the internet where even if you said the right thing, even if you said something that someone agreed with, maybe you didn't say it in quite the right way or, or maybe they detected some underlying sarcasm which may or may not have been there at all or intended at all and you suddenly have people jumping on you about your tone. Not what you said, how you said it. You said yes, but you didn't say it perfectly. You didn't say it in quite the right tone and she's blown this up into some big issue and some big fault on your part. And I think that you should say to her, look, I said yes. I'm sorry. I was a little blindsided because it hadn't come up for five months and I wasn't expecting our goodbye as I was saying goodbye to you for the holidays to be a moment to process our open relationship and you're sleeping with somebody else while you were gone. I thought it was going to be about us. But yes, you should do this. And you did talk about it and you have my yes. And I was a little like a little hiccup because I was – not expecting to have that conversation at that time. And it probably would have been better, and you can tell her this from me, it probably would have been better if she just went and fucked the guy since she already had permission to fuck the guy. There was really no need to check in with you at that moment. That if she was a good open relationship player, person at that moment, she would have made that goodbye, not about, oh, goodbye, I'm going to go fuck somebody else, but goodbye, you're great, we're great, can't wait to see you, we'll be thinking about you over the holidays. She... I think I'm going to tone police the shit out of her. She fucked that moment up by not making it about you two and what you have, but about making it about what she was about to go get. And of course you had a reaction. You know, you're dropping somebody off. Somebody you've been seeing for a year at the airport. They're going home for the holidays. You probably want to exchange gifts, have a kiss, say, I love you, not exchange gifts, have a kiss and have them check in with you about the sex they're going to have in your absence or in their absence or while they're gone. So she kind of fucked that moment up. She still got from you what she wanted, which was that yes that was tinged with some shock, sadness, regret, jealousy, all understandable emotions at that moment. And that's her fault for how she played it. She should have discussed this with you after the fact because she already had the permission slip in her hand. Anyway, 
Go pick her up at the airport when she gets home. Give her a big kiss. Ask her how her trip was. And if she continues to tone police you like this, she continues to find fault every time you have to process something like this, particularly when you go and fuck someone else, she might not be mature enough to either be in an open relationship or have a primary partner to whom she feels some sort of emotional obligation to disclose and process. Because if she, in the disclosing and processing, is continually finding fault even as she's getting the yeses and a sense that she wants, I don't think she's ready. And she would see issue with that car that day, not you. Hey, Dan, and the tech-savvy tech at-risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old male. I have a question. My 15-year-old nephew, I think he might be gay. Um, he hasn't come out and said anything, but he comes and spends uh, two weeks every winter with me up in my place, and we snowboard and stuff, and he just has a good time. And he's done some things. And he said some things, and when I see him with his friends, letter he has up here, every once in a while, I just something like, hmm, I wonder if he's homosexual. And I was wondering, is it my place to, I mean, I want to make sure he's happy and he's okay, and I hear horror stories about, you know, how hard it was to come out and all that stuff. And so my question is, how do I go about saying, you know, if you are, then that's great if you're happy and I'm here for you and whatever anyone says, you know, fuck them, but I'm here for you. Or do I not say anything and I just let him do his thing? And if he wants to, then he can and talk to us. And my second part of the question is my father and grandfather, his grandpa and great grandfather, they're, you know, they're older guys. There's, you know, they're 60 and 83. And so they're that older generation where they say things that are, they're, they're, they're offensive and, you know, they're kind of mean. And they don't mean to be mean, I hope. <laughs> but they're just of that generation where they, you know, that's just how they think and how they talk. And I've always been kind of the gadfly in my family as far as that goes. Is it my place to try and soften the ground for my nephew if he decides? If he is, and if he decides to, you know, come out and tell everyone. And if so, every time in the past that we've had conversations about homosexual rights and equality and stuff, they've, it's they're not okay up until the part where someone says homophobic. And I guess, I don't know, because my grandpa and my dad, they both were, you know, the Marines and they're tough guys. And anytime someone implies that they're afraid of something, it just pisses them off. And then any civil conversation just kind of flies out the window. So is there another term or a way that I can, you know, neutralize that before it happens? There is another term that you can use with your grandfather and great-grandfather, the tough guy Marines who say weirdly homophobic, anti-gay shit. But then when you say that that's homophobic, they insist that they're not afraid of anything. They're not afraid of gay people. Um, Morgan Freeman is uh, credited with saying this, although Morgan Freeman did not say this. A parody Twitter account said it pretending to be Morgan Freeman and now it's uh, attributed to him. And he should just embrace it and say, yeah, I said it because it's pretty genius. Uh, and you can say this to your grandfather and great-grandfather. Morgan Freeman, I hate the word homophobia. It's not a phobia. You are not scared. You are an asshole. So if they're uncomfortable with the term homophobic or being described as homophobes because they are brave he-men, you can assure them that you will just describe them as assholes from now on. Assholes about this. Assholes about 
the gay thing. I imagine they will be no more comfortable with the term asshole than they are with the term homophobic. But homophobic assholes is what they are being, particularly around their nephew who could very well be gay. And they may have other kids, other young people in your family who might be gay. Maybe the ones that there are no signs for. You know, people look at sometimes their gender nonconforming kids, nephews, nieces, children, grandchildren, and they see potentially gay and they start to weigh what they're saying and how they're saying it and how they're coming across when standing right next to that kid could be the totally gender conforming jock or feminine girl who is a dyke or bi or gay themselves. And if there is no like little gender nonconforming kid in the family, maybe the family never begins to police themselves uh, around the kids because they don't think they have to because they don't think there are any queer kids in their family. And guess what? There are, just not the queer kids that you can tell are queer, and there are a lot of those out there. The best thing that you can do for your nephew, don't go to him and say, hey, you're gay, right? It hasn't reached that stage. Sometimes it can. There are circumstances under which I do think people have to go to young queer people and say, look, I know you're gay. Let me help you, right? If they're getting into trouble, if they're cruising men online when they're 14 years old, you may have to intervene and out them. Not to themselves if they're out there being gay in the world, they know they're gay, but out them to yourself, out them to them, let them know that you know that kind of outing. But I don't think you need to do that in this case. What you need to do is telegraph to that kid that you're someone that he can trust, that you're going to be fine with this. And you've got the perfect foils in grandpa and great grandpa. The next time you're all together and they say something shitty, you make a stand and you confront them on their homophobic bullshit. And you can say like, Gramps, great Gramps, you could have grandchildren or great grandchildren who are gay. You could be talking about your own flesh and blood. And hopefully they have more great grandchildren than just your nephew. So you're not singling him out at that moment. And you wouldn't want them to think that you hated them and you don't hate them and you're not afraid of them, but you're being assholes and stop it. I, and then you add in, I have plenty of gay friends who I like, who are lovely, wonderful people. And I'm so glad that I'm of my generation because I get to know my gay friends for who they really are. Whereas you guys, when you were my age, the world was so homophobic and people were so shitty and everyone was such an asshole that your gay friends could never come out to you. And I know you had them because gay people didn't suddenly start existing in the 70s. You had them. But your gay friends were never comfortable enough around you guys to be open with you. My gay friends, however, are comfortable enough to be out with me. And I'm glad of it because I like them and I like knowing them for who they really are. Just have a little speech that where your nephew isn't even in your vision, right? You're not even glancing at him, but he's hearing it. And then when he's ready, he will come out to you. He will know that you are the one, that you are the safe relative that he can come out to. And every queer kid needs one. Hi, Dan. I'm a 39-year-old bisexual woman living in a big city in California. I share custody of my six-year-old son with my ex-wife. When she and I separated, he was two and a half. The separation coincided with some pretty funny moments wherein my son cried because he didn't have any bras of his own and he wouldn't get to wear them when he grew up. She and I giggled about them at the time, but didn't discuss it. Now she lives with a new partner who is a conservative woman new to being in a same-sex relationship, and this woman's new two children. I have a boyfriend who is not a large presence in my son's life, and my communication with my ex is 
nearly absent. There's been a lot of conflict, and it's hard to discuss things about my son with her. This morning, my son said, I have an idea. How about I put on your clothes? And he clarified that what he meant was a bra and panties. I said, sure. And he briefly tried them on, looking pretty aroused. And then he suggested we go to Target after school to buy kid-sized bras and panties. He also said that he tried on his stepsister's bra and that his stepbrother laughed at him. I said, maybe we could go to Target um, and said, buddy, you know, this is something that's private. Discussing it with friends probably isn't a good idea. And I want to know, did I handle this right? How do I encourage him to explore and also protect him? And do you have any suggestions for how I can broach the subject with my ex? I want to offer words of reassurance, but the words of reassurance that, you know, are standard in in cases like this are also rooted in a kind of terror, uh, the thought of a guy growing up to be a crossdresser, right? Or some other type of gender nonconforming whatever uh, in adulthood, as if there's something terribly, terribly awful about being a crossdresser when you grow up or being trans or being whatever when you grow up, when those things can be sources of great joy in an adult person's life, right? To be who they really are or to be able to express themselves however they they wish. There's the grain of salt. Before I say, just because he's six years old and he's fascinated by women's underclothes, bras and panties and dressing up them and even visibly aroused when he does, doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a crossdresser or have some other gender thing or issues or transitions in his future. Uh, you just don't know. Kids are weird and they develop weird uh, obsessions and sometimes they pass. You know, I have a friend whose kid was convinced when he was four years old that he was going to be a train when he grew up. And he is not a train now that he's a teenager. Not a train, not other kin or whatever the train version of other kin might be. Just a kid, just a teenage boy with an appropriate regard for and interest in locomotives. That said, you know, where you could fuck your kid up is by, you know, coming down like 10 tons of shit on his interest in panties and bras and his desire to perhaps own a couple of size six-year-old boy body size appropriate pairs, right? That said, you have to really communicate to him that this can be dicey, that there are perhaps social consequences, that people will judge him and misunderstand. And I think that's the way you present it to a kid that age. That there's not necessarily anything wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. But other people really have a hard time with this and don't understand it. And so we're going to create a little private space for you to enjoy this and do this where you're safe and where you can really throw yourself into your princess self or whatever it is you want to do or be at those moments. And if that's enough for you, if you don't want to be a princess at school too, that this is a, you have this space and that can be with you, with you, mom at your place that he can have a drawer where he keeps this stuff and you go get him some and you take him to target and buy him whatever it is that he wants. And in your house at these times, he can run wild that he can open his special play box and do what he likes and that this can be something that he may want to keep private. doesn't have to keep private, but he may want to keep private because his shitty step-siblings may not understand and may tease him. His mother's new girlfriend, the conservative first time in a same-sex relationship, she may not understand and may freak out. And so if that's the case, if this is not safe for you at your other mom's home, it's safe for you here. 
And then down the road, if this kid is trans, which I, I don't think so, this doesn't sound like trans stuff to me, not the trans childhood stuff that I've heard about. But if he is trans, if he is a girl, you can address those issues later. You can listen to him, see what comes out of him as he talks about this stuff and what it means to him. Um, but for right now, create that private space. Let him know that he's safe there and he can be whoever he wants to be in that space and not have to worry about what other people think because you love him and support him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old female calling from Los Angeles, and I need your advice on a family dilemma I'm facing. My dad happens to be gay and never officially came out to me, but after spending 18 years with one and living with a partner, we kind of figured it out. And when I confronted my dad about it, saying, hey, you know, it doesn't bother me if you are, I love you just the same, he said, well, we wanted to protect you when you were kids from having a gay father and the cruel things kids could say. So we've moved past that and, you know, that's wonderful and I have a great relationship with my dad. But my father's not... 100% out. He hasn't told his bosses or coworkers that he's gay, and he certainly doesn't tell most people except for close friends and family. The problem is I met and married my now husband, who's fantastic, and didn't really know how to tell him my dad was gay, but when he first met him, he figured it out and, you know, confronted me, my husband saying, you know, I'm totally cool if your dad's gay. That doesn't bother me. But my husband's family is quite conservative. They come from a Middle Eastern country that thinks gays doesn't, don't exist and treats gay people pretty horribly. And while my husband has a great relationship with my father and his partner, um, he suggests that we don't tell his family because likely they will not handle it well. So anyway, fast forward eight years later, and my husband and I got married, and... Um, we haven't told my in-laws that my dad's gay. And what's strange is while, you know, usually I would maybe confront my in-laws and tell them my dad's gay and kind of force them to be respectful, my dad is actually really uncomfortable even telling, coming out to my in-laws. And in fact, my dad's partner didn't even want to sit next to him at the wedding because, I mean, he didn't say this, but it's clear that they're just not comfortable doing so. So... It's not even like I can, you know, confront my dad's, you know, my in-laws and force them to accept my dad and his partner if my dad and his partner are equally uncomfortable. So my husband and I are kind of in this awkward situation during holidays and events where we have to pick one. We feel like we're hiding, you know, the reality of my dad's relationship from my in-laws and not giving my in-laws a chance. You know, maybe they won't have a problem with it. But anyway, I would love your advice on how to handle this situation. How ironic. You know, you don't want to look at the 15-year-old nephew and say, you're gay, right? You want to have this conversation where your 15-year-old nephew, who may not be ready to come out yet, can hear how supportive you are, right? My advice for the earlier caller and know that you're a safe person to come out to. And here you are with a dad and you need to have a very similar conversation. Uh, not with your dad, not where he can overhear you because he knows that you love and support him, uh, even though he doesn't quite fully love and support himself yet. You need to have the conversation with your in-laws. Uh, you can engineer a confrontation or a discussion if you prefer. You can engineer a discussion about gay issues. Gay issues are certainly constantly in the news and same-sex marriage. And you can pivot with your dad there or with your dad not there to the topic. And when you're 
in-laws, your relatives say shitty anti-gay things. Instead of saying, I have a dad who's gay, you have friends who are gay. You can give the same speech and you can tell them that they're wrong and you can confront them and kind of lay the groundwork for dad coming out later. You can begin the conversation with your in-laws about how wrong they are about queer people and you can cite the queer people in your life without rattling off their names or their particular relationships to you. Then you go to your dad and you say, you're out now, out to us, but you're doing that thing, that thing that Dan Savage's mother yelled at Dan Savage about when he was a teenager, which is you're not really out the way you're out. You're actually pulling people into your closet with you. You have a slightly bigger closet now and I am now in the closet with you. I have to lie to people about your relationship with your partner. Uh, I have to bite my tongue when people, my relatives, my in-laws may say shitty anti-gay things and they don't know they're talking about you but I know they're talking about you but I'm respecting your desire not to be out to them and so I keep my mouth shut. So here I am in the closet with you and there's only so long you can go on playing this game and it's a little unfair to the people in your life who love you. That you're out to us but not out, which means we're in too. We're in the closet with you. I'm working on my relatives without mentioning your name, talking about my gay friends, my gay relatives. One day I'd like to be able to tell them that you're gay. One day I'd like you to be able to tell them that you're gay. Because carrying this lie around and hiding this, as you know, dad, is exhausting. And there's only so long I want to have to do it. And you don't need to do it anymore. Not with me, not with family. And you shouldn't have to do it with my in-laws. Hi, Dan. <laughs> we're calling from Canada. We're a couple. Yeah. And uh, we're basically trying to find out about how to bridge the gap between our two families. So a little bit of background is my I was brought up by basically hippies, you know, a little bit of pot smoking and whatnot. A lot of pot smoking. And... And, oh, I come from a family uh, background that's a lot more, uh, I guess you could say, formal and conservative. My parents are uh, immigrants from Trinidad, and they're just just a very different lifestyle, basically. So we just moved in together. We've been together for almost five years, and we're trying to figure out how to kind of bridge the gap between both of our families that have such different lifestyles and, and backgrounds. Like what is a good event to bring them together? Like we want to have a party maybe, but we don't know because we just, we're just not sure. Help Dan. We need your help. I would suggest that you guys uh, schedule a Dharma and Greg marathon and invite both your families over to watch. It's basically the same premise a hippy-dippy family with a hippy-dippy child and conservative family with a conservative kid and the conservative kid and the hippy-dippy fall in love and then their families mix to general hilarity and misunderstanding. Uh, It's a terrible show, uh, but it might bridge the gap or you could stop stressing about bridging the gap and just throw your families together and see what happens. And maybe there'll be a big explosion, but if you guys were capable of coming together and bridging your own fucking gaps all on your own, your families, theoretically, ostensibly, your parents, all adults, should be able to take each other in and be respectful and courteous and polite and work this shit out themselves. Be able to get a read on each other. If they can't see, they will soon learn that they are from very different backgrounds, very different lifestyles, 
and they will make peace because that's what families do when two people come together. You're stuck with each other, right? The extended families, as often as they blend together, as often as they have to sit around the same table, holidays, whatever, you tend to focus on the things that you have in common. You know, sane families do. Reasonable, rational people do. They don't go to where the differences are. They don't hurtle towards the contentious, potentially explosive political, religious, cultural issues and start the conversation there. Families that know that they have to get along because their children are in love, even if they're very different, talk about the weather. They talk about what they have in common, their children. They talk about movies. They talk about television. They talk about the Kardashian sisters' butts. They talk about anything other than those issues that you guys are so worried about potentially being explosive, the hippy-dippy stuff, the cultural conservative stuff. If your parents are reasonable and rational adults, you don't have to worry about that stuff. They're not going to talk about that stuff. So get them together, see what happens. If they prove in that moment that they are not reasonable and rational adults, if your hippy-dippy parents insist on trying to get his conservative parents stoned or if your conservative parents lecture your hippy-dippy parents about marijuana or anything else, then you know that you'll have to see them separately and that these adults in your lives, your parents that you're saddled with are not reasonable and rational and then you run interference. But for that first meeting, you don't bridge the gap. You just toss them together and see what happens. Hi, Dan. I'm in a relationship with someone I really love and I hopefully will marry them in the relatively near future. And I also am someone who has a twin sister with a severe disability. She's a quadriplegic and she's been wheelchair bound for our whole life. So obviously the dynamic between her and I is very complicated. And I think the, the shortest explanation of this is that my sister, whose life is complicated, you know, beyond a simple explanation because of her disability, she's pretty jealous of this chapter of my life. And it's very painful for me because she she doesn't really want to spend time to get to know this person. And she's pretty limited in her social skills. And she doesn't make any kind of an effort. So, I mean, to sort of simplify things, I really want to hear what your thoughts are on dealing with someone who's toxic in your family that also, you know, is dealing with a compromised situation, a disability, an illness. You know, is it okay to still distance yourself? I constantly feel like I want permission to just step away from her a little bit because she is pretty abusive and pretty unsupportive of this really exciting and amazing thing in my life. But obviously I also feel this huge responsibility to care for her. And so I'd really love to hear from you. You absolutely can distance yourself from anybody. Uh, You can distance yourself certainly from a toxic relative. Um, The fact that your sister's a quadriplegic, the the fact that she has special needs, um, and dependencies, uh, and perhaps has been dependent upon you and, and, and other members of her immediate family uh, for support and care, doesn't obligate you to spend all of your time with her or more time with her than you can handle uh, being abused if she is indeed toxic and abusive. Um, you are allowed to distance yourself from toxic and abusive family members, uh, even disabled ones. 
That said, you know, the only evidence, the only thing you cite uh, around her toxicity or abusiveness is her unwillingness to spend time with or get to know this person that you're going to marry. If I were you, I would stop pressing that issue that maybe, you know, she is a quadriplegic. Maybe she is, she is at a tremendous social disadvantage that having to make nice with or interact with or welcome to the family, your partner when she feels that she may never have a partner herself, maybe that's painful for her and she lashes out. Stop forcing the issue. She doesn't have to hang out with your boyfriend. She doesn't have to like him. He doesn't have to like her. And if that's a flashpoint, if you insisting that she have some sort of relationship with or get to know this person that you're so close to and thinking about marrying, if that's the flashpoint, fucking back off. Don't force the issue. Perhaps there are many more flashpoints. Perhaps she's abusive generally. The script that gets written for disabled people is sort of their magic, right? That they're kind of wise and benevolent presences. And no, they're just people. People like all people. And some of them are great and some of them are lousy. And some of them are hard to take and some of them are fucking toxic. And sometimes people are angry about the cards they get dealt, the hands they get dealt, and they lash out at the people closest to them, the people who can't abandon them, right, without incurring tremendous social judgment which is the position that you're in. Be there for your sister as best you can. Be there for your sister as much as your own sense of self and sanity allows you to be there for your sister, but you're not obligated to stand there and take grief or abuse, emotional abuse from her just because she's your sister or just because she is a quadriplegic. All that said, Let's be a little constructive. Look around in your – if your sister is jealous that you're out there having a social life, that you're out there meeting people, look around in your community. Are there services that would get her out, get her out of the house, that would allow for her to meet people? Are there independent living facilities where she can be on her own and interacting with other people who have similar struggles so that she has that in common with them, that they can start there and lash out at the world together or – just get the fuck on with it together. My Aunt Judy was uh, in a wheelchair for most of her adult life and she had had polio and she wound up in an independent living facility where she met the man that she fell in love with and married in all but the marriage certificate because it would have fucked up their social security benefits if they got legally married. But they were together for 25 years and my Aunt Judy would not have met him if she was just at home surrounded by her siblings all her life. So – Stop forcing your sister to interact with your boyfriend and start looking around and seeing what else is out there for her that could expand her universe, her social universe outside of your family and relieve you guys of the burden, but also help grow her world in a way that might help her be at peace. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female living in the Southeast, and I have a question about a new guy I just started seeing a couple of weeks ago. We hit it off really intensely when we first met and pretty quickly started spending a lot of time together and sitting over at each other's places. And it's all been a lot of fun and really great, uh, except for one thing. My roommate came home in the middle of the night on the second night that he stayed over and, as she put it to me, found that Yogi Bear had torn up the campsite. Our refrigerator was standing open with an empty box of, well, that had contained leftovers, uh, overturned. There was spinach all over the floor, a perfectly good box of organic blackberries in a trash can, um, even some pieces of dog food that looked 
really like they had a person-sized bite taken out of them. I actually woke up that night to find him in bed wearing his button-down shirt and socks and a ball cap, unconsciously eating my roommate's veggie chips. And when I sort of rolled over and said, hey, hey, babe, you know, those aren't mine. You can't eat those. He just kept shoveling them into his mouth. And I realized that he was unconscious. I brought it up with him the next day and he was very embarrassed. (laughs) And he said, yeah, sometimes I night eat. So I guess there's a sleep disorder where he gets up in the middle of the night and raids the campsite. Uh, The problem is that this has happened twice now. He seems only to eat my roommate's food. My roommate and I have a great relationship. We've been living together now for about three years, and she is the closest thing to a life partner that I've ever had, including most of my boyfriends. She's also an only child, and so she's a little touchy about her things. Um, So it's created a really sort of a tense situation around this guy staying the night because he also happens to make a great deal of noise while he is night eating. Somehow I've slept through it both times, but her room is right off the kitchen. So it wakes her up. Her food runs up in the garbage or in his stomach. And I have addressed it with him a couple of times. Uh, he's replaced some of the food he's bought, but I'm in this weird position where I want to have him stay over But if he eats all of her stuff, I kind of have to give him this grocery list in order to stay, to like keep the peace with my roommate because she has said a couple of like sort of shitty, slightly passive aggressive things about, you know, how she's going to start charging him, you know, for lost sleep and lost groceries. And, you know, she's not wrong. Like it's not for her to feed the guy, but I don't want to always stay the night at his place. I have a dog that I like to stay with at my house. Um, My house is, frankly, a whole lot nicer, cleaner, and full of nice, fun things to do than his. Um, But having him stay the night seems to really create a problem. Mike Birbiglia is a stand-up comedian, an actor, director, writer. He starred in three Comedy Central specials. He's released three comedy albums. And he wrote, directed, and starred in Sleepwalk With Me, which is about his relationship with a girl. And his struggles with a sleepwalking disorder known as Rapid Eye Movement Behavior Disorder. Sleepwalk With Me premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, won a big award. And Mike is more than qualified to give you callers some advice about what to do about your boyfriend. But I don't want to talk to him right now, at least at the start, about sleepwalking or sleepwalk with me or comedy or any of that. Mike, you're in the new Annie. (laughs) The film version with that Wallace kid is Annie. This whole thing is a setup. The whole thing is a setup. Jamie, Jamie Foxx, Cameron Diaz, and Mike Birbiglia. And I just want to know which orphan you play. I'm not oh. familiar with little orphan middle-aged no, white I'm guy Annie. with a wife. Did you see the ads? No, I didn't. I am Annie. I play Annie. <laughs> well, they did a really good CGI job Thanks. on you after the fact. That was uh, no, that was fun. I do, I do one scene in a movie, and it's it was a lot of fun. It was a fun bunch of people. Was it a good time? It was. Destroying a beloved, I, cherished American musical? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, well, someone, I haven't seen it. I don't know. Someone pointed out on Twitter to me yesterday that I'm the only person in the cast who doesn't sing. Really? Yeah, I didn't know. How did you that. get away with that? I don't know. I would have enjoyed this singing. I would have liked that. Well, I don't like that musical anyway. I don't care if you cut off its head and shit down its neck. Do you not really like it? No, I really don't care for that musical. Oh, I really loved it. Really? I grew up on it. You, you have no perspective when you grow up in these movies. I grew up on Sondheim. 
Oh, okay. Is why I grew up to be so twisted. <laughs> so you have good taste. I do have good taste. Yeah. And that precludes Annie. <laughs> this is uh, – I did not see this coming. <laughs> I thought this – You were walking into the musical musical theater aficionado lion's den. I thought this was going to be using my knowledge as a sleep physician. Um, okay. So let's pivot to that. So. Okay. She's dating this guy. It comes out that he has a sleep disorder. Yes. He gets up in the night and Yogi Berra's Yogi, Bear's, <laughs> Yogi Bear. not Yogi Berra, which is another great movie. First of all, she, her roommate wants compensation potentially for lost sleep, which is my favorite part of the call. <laughs> well, what's worse? Let's take the the baseline issue first. What's worse? Living with an only child or dating a guy with a sleep disorder? Both are horrible. Both are horrible. Um, no, I, I mean, I've dealt with this a lot. I mean, I, I have a severe sleep disorder. Like you said, I have what's called RBD, REM behavior disorder, where I have a, a dopamine deficiency, and uh, which is the chemical that's released from your brain into your body when you fall asleep. So that it paralyzes your body so you don't do what's in your brain. So you don't act out your dreams. Well, I do act out my dreams. I've had really dangerous incidents. I jumped out a second-story window. I've I've thrown things around. I've had, you know, over the years I ended up going to a doctor. And now I take uh, – I'm, I'm not going to say that what I take because then people go, oh, I have that too. And uh, then just start popping I have some pill. Jack Daniels right here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I take medication and I, and I actually sleep in a sleeping bag up to my neck. Uh, when I go to bed at night, I wear mittens so I can't open the sleeping bag. That sounds kind of kinky. Have you ever it, seen a sleep sack, which is a bondage device they sell at like stores like Mr. S in San Francisco? No. Which is a leather version of that that you can't let yourself Is that out a of. real thing? Yeah, it's totally a real thing. Wait, but what's the kink of it? Do, do you not let your partner out yes, of it? Yes. So, oh, okay. So you're captive. So you're, put you're holding in them this captive. leather sleeping bag that it says buckles and straps and locks. Oh, I got to check that out. Just flew in from San Francisco today. Oh, I'm on the wrong side of that one. So I got to look into that. Is it called a sleep sack? It's called the sleep sack. Yeah. People always ask me, they're like, well, how do you have sex if you're in a sleeping bag? And then my joke answer is they say, well, it's like Orthodox Jews. We cut a hole. And, and <laughs> <laughs> but the real answer is that you wait, you have sex and then you put it on afterwards. It's not that elaborate. So do, you're in this sleep sa- sleeping bag at night, not a sleep sack. Yeah. You're in this sleeping bag at night and are you still trying to act out your dreams? Are you struggling sometimes, with it? Sometimes, yeah. It's, you know, the the medication kind of, it's an anti-anxiety and so it knocks down some of the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the intensity of it, mm-hmm. certainly. My dreams end up being fluffier. Mm-hmm. Kind of less running away and less, you know, like I remember a really bad one that reminds me of of this woman's call where I was – when I was first dating my wife, we were at her apartment and she had a roommate. And in the middle of the night, we fell asleep watching um, the movie Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And there's this dream where um, I think it's Edward Norton's hand – is held down by Brad Pitt and Brad, or the other way around. Brad Pitt's hand is held down, and Edward Norton's character is going to put pour acid on his hand, and he pulls his hand away and he sprints away. And I had a dream that was my hand. I sprint out of the room, and I even threw a chest of drawers in my wake, like in an action film. Wow! And I ran out into the hallway of the apartment building, and I'm hitting the elevator button 
And my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now runs out and she said, Mike, it's a dream, you know? And I was like, Brad Pitt, you know? <laughs> and then I, and then I woke up and it was horrible. I mean, what reminds me of it is that it was her, it was my wife's roommate's uh, chest of drawers and it was smashed. So we had to, we had to replace that. And it was, I was not popular in that apartment. I was not really welcome. And so we just pretty much stayed at my place from that point on. So if this guy's only problem is getting up in the middle of the night and eating everything and making a mess, does he need to go the drugs and the uh, I, I would see, sleep I, sack route? I would see a doctor. It sounds – I mean I'm not a doctor but it sounds serious. Doesn't that sound serious to you? Yeah. The, the, he's eat, just eating – I mean the dog food part unless she's exaggerating. He like, did throw the blackberries in the trash, which is exactly what you should do with blackberries because <laughs> blackberries are disgusting. She's not completely irrational or so, out of it in his sleep. So I would say there's two two versions of what this guy can do. Um, and then the different thing – I guess a whole different thing is what she's going to do. But in terms of his sleep disorder, first things first is I would – there's this great book called The Promise of Sleep – uh, that I reference in my movie, it's, it's by a guy named Doctor Dement, William C. Dement. He's like the father of sleep medicine. Wait, Doctor Dement? I know it's now it's it's, it's a very unfortunate name. It's a very unfortunate name for a man but trying to instill to calm. No, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> Doctor Dement. That book, Promise of Sleep, has a like a lot of basic tips for healthier sleep hygiene. A few hours before bed, turn off your phone and the internet. And, uh, you know, don't eat big meals and, and all that kind of stuff. So I would say that's like the first thing. For the other thing, I, I'm sure you've dealt with this before is you shouldn't, for, you shouldn't have laptops in, in the bed to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel that way? Uh, yeah, in theory. I think they're a big cock block. But I have them in item. my bed all the time. Oh, you do? They're always on our computers in bed. <sighs> yeah. So I would throw that a out of the A bigger cock block than being zipped up into a sleeping bag? <laughs> You can't get out of <laughs> glass that, houses. That probably doesn't have a hole for your neck. <laughs> there'd be feathers all over the room. <laughs> oh man, I'm in the I'm in the wrong battle zone right now. It is the upside <laughs> of the actual leather sleep sack that they sell at Mr. S in San Francisco. It does have a hole for your deck. Does it really? And your ass. Does it? Yeah, it's full access. How many holes are there? I guess uh, just two. And your tits. Four. Yeah. Oh, four. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll see if I can get them to send you one. I would love that. That I don't. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so that would be the first tip I would say. Is this book? Pick up a book on it and watch the movie because the you movie watch is, my movie too. Sure, it's on Netflix all, is is terrific. Oh, thanks. And it's also about how you learned you had this sleep disorder and what you did about it and what it's, caused it. And truthfully, it's a lot about what you talk about a lot, which is uh, sometimes you need to get out of a relationship, even though. You enjoy the relationship or aspects of the relationship. Sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. Um, and dump the motherfucker already. Not yeah, that she was a motherfucker. Yeah, no, and yeah, not that the person's a bad person, but that that's not the right thing at that moment in your lives. So it deals with some of that stuff. But um, it's on you know, Netflix, iTunes, every all the stuff. And you should watch it. <laughs> and it is hilarious. Oh, thanks. Um, and then – the second thing is I actually in this – just anecdotally li listening to this guy's story, I would say go to a sleep physician. I mean it's – I mean that sounds pretty serious. Um, and could it escalate? Did your disorder yeah, mine escalate? Started Things smaller, got more and more dangerous. For sure, yeah. So right now it's just throwing blackberries away and eating chips in bed asleep and 
it'll be making omelets and opening a soup kitchen a year from now. Absolutely. It could escalate into philanthropy. (laughs) (laughs) The very – the all-too-common philanthropy escalation. Um, Next thing you know, he could be recycling for the neighbors. You can't have that. No. But uh, no, it's – no, it it can be serious. It's a lot more serious than – Certainly, I realized it was before it almost killed me. And so I would say that. And then for her, I mean, this is more your department, what she should do. But I would guess that you'd say maybe they should just not sleep at her house? Her well, it, it is a little weird that she says it's causing all these problems, all these problems with her roommate and their food bills and the messes. And the obvious solution is stay at his place. Yeah. But she likes her place better. I know. Well, that's where her soulmate is. Her roommate. Her <laughs> yes. roommate soulmate, the only child. Uh, and then you have to take some responsibility for the choice you're making. It's not a forced – it's not a problem. It's a problem with an easy solution, but you prefer your apartment. Right. And so you're bringing chaos man into your apartment and then you have to deal with the chaos and the uh, food bills and the pissed off roommate. Or go sleep at his place. I, it just, or pick a neutral place in between and fuck there and then go home separately. Or just break up. Or just break up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess there's a lot of ways to. But they been like, it's only been a couple of weeks. They no, no, like absolutely, other. absolutely. And it's you know it's it's something that a lot of people have. A lot of people have sleep disorders. But not everybody has the magic sleeping bag that you can't get out of. No. So do you travel with this? I do. You're on the road I, right I now. Do I have like a, a? It is actually called a summer sleep sack mm-hmm. from one of those mountain stores, and it's uh, just you know it's not so bulky. Just throw it in the back I hope I never develop this sleeping disorder because I literally can't sleep with a ring on my finger. I have to take everything off. You take your ring off? I take my wedding ring off every night when I go to bed. Why? Because you'll rip it off in your sleep? No, because I can, I can feel it. Like I'm trying to go to sleep and I can feel it on my finger and it makes it prevents me from falling asleep. I have insomnia. I have a really hard time falling asleep. You are a lot Everything of work. Everything has to be perfect. <laughs> you are a lot of work. I am. And unfortunately, I can't be zipped into a sleep sack and yeah. under the bed or something. Wow. like that. Would you take another question with us? Oh, please. Here? Yeah. Hi, Dan. I'm an openly bisexual male from New Hampshire, and recently my girlfriend has, we, 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 we've been getting a lot of fights lately, and that intimacy's been growing cold. I had unfortunately cheated on her earlier in the relationship, and she's been saying she has a lot of trust issues with that, and I've been trying to live as publicly and as openly as I can. I mean, I am a stand-up comic, so there's a bit of openness to my life that I, I'm used to living with anyways, but, like, she always has access to my Facebook and my email and stuff. Me and her are going to a really bad one today, and it looks like it may be over, and I'm just having a... almost 30 years old and having a hard time moving on from a relationship, so any advice, anything. I, I, I love this girl, Everything, every fiber in my being wants to be with her. No one else compares to her. She's my fellow pot smoking, rocking out, awesome hipster girlfriend that I fell in love with. We've both grown as people and gotten older. She she says she's not happy. It makes my fucking heart. So, uh, first thing I want you to do is critique his comedy. Well,. I think this is all great fodder for material. Really? This is all going to, yeah, give us two years. It's going to be great five minutes. Tragedy plus time. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's just sad. I don't, I mean, this is, this is your specialty. I don't know what to say. I don't, 
I don't know that there's enough information for you to solve this one. Is this there? sounds like a, an unscrewable pooch. Like he screwed the pooch and there's no unscrewing it. There's no WD-40 can in the world that's going to get that pooch off your dick. You cheated on her and she's either – you know that's either festered and she can't live with that or accept it. Yeah. And it's, it's grown as a cancer and destroyed the relationship or she's just pointing to that as an excuse to get out because right. she wants out. Yeah. And so she can fault you for this thing that you can't fix or solve or really apologize for or make up to her in any way on the way out the door. And people will sometimes do that. They went out just generally and they'll pick something that can't be fixed. Yep. That you can't solve. Like, like that last episode with the smoking. When yeah. the guy came on the date and he was smoking, she said that's a deal breaker. Right. And they'll pick it because they don't want you to solve it because they just want out. Yes. So there's no apologizing to her. And you, she may be perfect for you, but you're not perfect for her. And it's over. Yeah, it's a sad one. I feel the way he feels as he's describing it. Okay, so now how would you turn that into a joke? <laughs> <laughs> or can we not put you on the spot like that? Oh, God. I don't know how you turn that into a joke. <laughs> It's, that's just – you need time and perspective. I mean whenever people say tragedies, comedy is tragedy plus time, they just mean perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a year or so, this guy will be OK. It's just – you know, it's just time. And he'll meet some new girl. Yeah. And then this is the bullshit people do when, when they're breaking up. There's no one else in the world who can replace this person. Or man because he's bisexual. Oh, that's true. No yeah. other man. Thank you for striking a blow for bisexual visibility while I was doing my bisexual invisibility thing here. Someone's got to keep you honest around here. That's true. Thank God you're here. <laughs> um, but he'll meet somebody else. Uh, I, I think of Tim Minchin's song. If I didn't have you, I'd have somebody else. The statistically oh, honest love song. Yeah, and it's true. You'll meet somebody else, and then you'll be glad that this relationship ended, and you'll have hopefully ten or twelve brand new jokes in a month, for sure, or two, or twenty-four. But in the meantime, we're sorry. Is it hard for people to be in relationships with comedians when they know they're going to wind up being joshed about on stage? It's hard I for think Terry. It's, I think it's hard. I mean with – yeah. No, I mean with my last special, my girlfriend's boyfriend, my, my last show, uh, it's all about my relationship with my wife and my now wife and how I decided to get married even though neither of us really believe in the idea of marriage and how much of a weird struggle that was and how rocky our relationship was. And so I went back into some of these rockier times and talked about them on stage and early on, that was very touch and go. I mean, I would tell Jen a story that I was saying on stage, and then she would say, that's not what happened. And I would say, that's how I remember it. Which she would say her version, and then I would come to – we would come to kind of a peaceful version of the events together. Fortunately, she's a poet, so she, she actually had a lot of the best lines did, in the show. Did she ever tell you, you may not? Use that story, that event. Can she rule things out of bounds? I think she can, whether she realizes it or not. She's definitely. I, I there's certain things that I uh, I veer away from, but uh, for the most part, I try to put it all. Because she there. could just snip that little ripcord off your sleeping bag, and you could never get out. <laughs> She's in complete control of whether it's you sadistic. show up for a gig. <laughs> You're immediately thinking of the most evil possible thing that you can do with me in my sleeping bag. Yes, I first am. Of all, you're gonna tie, first of all, you're going to give me a leather one to tie me up in. And the second thing is you're going to clip the sleeping bag in my sleep. I can't believe in all this time you've been talking about this sleeping bag you can't get out of. No one's brought up that there are fetish versions of that that have been around for yeah. 50 years that people pay thousands of dollars for. 
Yeah, no, I'm. I'm. This is a whole new universe for me. I'm very excited. When are you in it. San Francisco next? I was there yesterday. My sister Patty was getting married, and I was there for. I was in Berkeley for four days. Love it there. Next time I'll you're be there. there, yeah, I'll be there soon. I will arrange to have you zipped into one at Mister S, and you can see how the other half get zipped into sleeping bags they can't get out of. <laughs> the kinkier half. I can't wait. I. Sometimes when you advertise some of the sex toys and you say well, it's, it's discounted, it's twenty percent, mm-hmm. always worries me. I'm like, I want to if I'm gonna get sex toys, I want to pay full price. I want to pay a premium to make sure that everything's clean. And They're not used. <laughs> yeah, I know. I They're marked down. They're, They're not covered down. in no, lube and pubic hair. I know. I know. There's no actually secondhand market <laughs> for sex toys. There's no flea market you can go to in New York City and find secondhand sex toys. There's, there's probably dedicated landfills packed with them. It's just the Catholic boy in me worried about having anything to do with sex, I think. You and I have that in common. We're both we, Catholic boys. Well, we have a similar joke. Do you know that I have a joke? I don't know what your joke is word for word, but I remember when you heard, I heard you say it. I go, oh, that's similar. I have a joke where I say I was an altar boy as a kid, and the answer is no, I wasn't. And I think it's because they knew I was a talker. <laughs> I have that look about me. And I was so bad at it that I think they thought, well, if he's this bad at lighting candles, wink. <laughs> and I was an altar boy and my dad was a Chicago cop oh. and a detective and a Catholic deacon. And that kind of yeah. – it felt like it was like being under a glass dome at St. Jerome's Rectory sure. where I worked on the weekends. Wow. Uh, and I went out on dates with priests that I, it took me like 10 years to look back and think, that was a date. Really? That priest took me to dinner and a movie. What the fuck was that about? And where really? were my parents that night? And did you did you ever hook up with the priest? No. No? No. Interesting. Not that it, when I was 13 you could describe that as hooking up. I think that would be being hooked. Right, by right. A being hooked. Being hooked. I remember when I was a kid, there was um there was a priest who was everybody's favorite priest, all of us altar boys' favorite priest because he was just like us. Like he was like it was fun priest, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like one of these day. In one of these days, we showed up to school, and it's like Father, you know, Brian. I'm just not Father his fun. name. Yeah, yeah. Father, no father, 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 yeah, father, yeah. Father fun is gone. We were like, why? And they said, well, he's just at another church now. And we we were crestfallen. I mean, we we're just we we're broken by this thing. Wow. But I don't know what happened. I mean, I've asked. My friends who were altar boys also, and none of them have told me that they knew anything. I, I don't know. It's, it, I mean, it was Massachusetts. So. I'm very conflicted because, you know, the Catholic Church does so many homophobic shitty things. You know, the new pope is great, but still the homophobic shitty stuff continues. Yeah. Um, and all the, the all the raping of children institutionally of for centuries. Yes. We, they talk about it as if it's only the last 60 years. Yeah. Because those, those people are the people here still to talk about it and That's right. press charges. Yeah. It went on forever. When and I'm sometimes conflicted because in my actual lived experience, like two Catholic priests kind of saved me. Really, like my, a Catholic priest interceded with my mother when she was freaking out about me coming out, and wow. came out to her when she t- went to him that I had come out, and she went to him asking like what where institution I should be locked in, and he came out to her in that moment. So That's he incredible. Was gay. Yeah. And then when Terry and I had our son baptized, this Catholic priest, friend of the family, basically married us during the baptism in front of our families. Wow. Which he could be defrocked for and thrown out of the church for and everything and he just did it and it was really great. And so like at two very pivotal moments in my life, yeah. Catholic priest really stepped up and I never got raped. And despite that, having been an altar boy, despite having not, been and clearly not, a queer kid. I not that you'd upon. call that a perk. 
<laughs> really, that's the baseline. Yeah. Like, we have a right to expect not to be raped by priests. Oh, God. So, yeah, I'm torn as well. I mean, I, I went to, you know, I go to church with my mom on Christmas. That's sort of the extent of my relationship with the church. And and my mom is very, you know, serious Catholic, devout Catholic, and she's probably the kindest person I've ever met. And and is not just kind of me, she's kind to everyone. So I'm torn. My mom was the same way and I'm torn the same way. I wish we had more Dorothy Day, Pope Francis style Catholics rattling around in the United States. Yeah. After well, maybe JP2 Fra- and Benedict, the church purged itself of liberals and progressives. We'll see how long – we'll see if Francis lives very long. We'll see if he avoids standing at the top of any steep marble staircases in Vatican City. Oh, gosh. I wonder if there would be a Vatican III with him, right? Could, they, could that happen? I don't know. There could be a sort of a, a, a he he could he could sort of have the church embark on, in a new direction. Okay, let's circle back to the bisexual stand-up community yeah. in New Hampshire. Okay, who's gonna who's about to be dumped? Yeah. When you broke up with your girlfriend mm-hmm. after in Sleepwalk with me, mm-hmm. did you in, was it your breakup or her breakup? Who broke up with who? It was, gosh, it was it was it was relatively mutual. What's easier to make comedy out of? Getting dumped or dumping someone? Oh, getting dumped, certainly. I mean, you because anytime, anytime you're the 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 object of the offense, mm-hmm. the audience is much more with you. So if you dump somebody, the audience is less sympathetic than oh, if you were yeah. dumped and you're talking about it. So if you, you can, were, if you're, if you're the person dumping, you should just lie about it. <laughs> so the, our advice for this guy, this stand-up bisexual yeah. comedian in New Spin Hampshire, it. is spin it as the victim. You will be the well. He is the victim. He yeah, wants yeah, this he girl. Is, she doesn't want yeah, him. Yeah. And the upside for that is the jokes will be better. The audience will be on your side. And the sooner she dumps you, the sooner you get to mine this for material because it I, takes twelve to twenty-four months. Before yeah, you I would can say that. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I'm I'm hopeful for him. So there's so. A, there's a predatory way in which memoirists, comedians, writers, poets move through life. Oh, this shitty thing happened. Material. I think predatory is a really strong word. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were coming out of the Catholic priest discussion, and predatory is, of course, on my mind. Uh, Predation. Oppor- opportunistic is possibly a a nicer way to put it. Convenient. Convenient. Happy. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And we can all do it. You don't have to just be a comedian to turn your pain into to happiness and jokes. Cocktail hour banter. Yeah, absolutely. Mike Berbiglia, you're <laughs> performing your tour. Tell us about your tour. Um, you're in Seattle tonight. Yeah. I actually performed. I was going through my calendar this year. I'm on a 100-city tour of America right now. It's called Thank God for Jokes. And it's all about jokes and how they sort of get us in trouble uh, often. More often than not, and then, but and ultimately, have the ability to make us closer to other people, in the same way that we're describing. So, uh, yeah, it's a show I'm very proud of, and it's sort of mid process. It'll be a comedy special probably in about a year from now, and that's about it. I'm working on my next movie. Mike Berbiglia, the tour is thank God for jokes. Check him out on Twitter at Berbigs uh, for information about the tour. And thank you so much for coming Thanks, in, Dan. And this is so handling fun. these questions. Hi, Dan. I am a sex worker, and I just started meet, uh, seeing a new guy, and I have no idea how to tell him. I also have no idea how to tell him that I don't plan on being monogamous, but I really like him, and I want to keep seeing him. You're doing sex work, and you're seeing someone new, uh, and you're already being intimate with that person. You're already fucking. Uh, 
you know, how to tell him, you tell him promptly. That's how you tell him. Um, most people are not sex workers. Most people assume that the people they're dating are not sex workers. Most people assume, rightly or wrongly, that the person who's fucking them when they start fucking isn't fucking anybody else. That's an issue to unpack uh, with another call at a later date. Um, that assumption isn't always rational, but most people make that assumption. And so the onus is on people who are fucking other people, having other partners, or doing sex work to disclose that fact because the person that you're fucking, this person that you're seeing, has a right to know that. They have a right to know what sort of risks they're taking, right? And if you're a sex worker and you're having sex with other people, that places you at a certain higher degree of risk for sexually transmitted infections. And I don't say this to contribute to fucking bullshit assumptions and biases about sex workers. Most sex workers are more careful about their sexual safety and about disease prevention than most civilians are. But you are at greater risk and if he is having sex with you, he is at elevated risk and he has a right to make an informed choice about whether he wants to continue to fuck you or to see you under those circumstances. And so you need to disclose. And if you, as you say, you're going to keep doing sex work and you're not going to be monogamous, if you disclose and he runs for the hills, good fucking riddance, not the right partner for you. You could lose him, but you want to lose him if he can't handle this, if he's not up for this. You don't want someone in your life who can't support who you are, what you want, your career choices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So disclose promptly. And if he's gone, good, not the right partner for you. The next guy that you disclose to might be the right partner for you. Hey, Dan, I'm a 20-something female with a question about kink and relationships. I've been seeing this guy for about a month now, and I really like him. He really likes me. The sex is really hot. Um, there's this one thing we keep tripping over, which is that he's very kinky, and I'm not. I don't think I'm completely vanilla. We've tried some Dom stuff in the bedroom, and I'm really into it. The thing is that it makes me really uncomfortable when that dynamic goes outside the bedroom. Uh, we've talked about it a lot, and he says that he feels used when that part of him is ignored in a non-sexual situation. And I've told him it makes me feel really uncomfortable, and I don't like it, especially orders, I, which I don't mind in the bedroom. It just makes me uncomfortable if we're just, like, hanging out and he springs one on me. Um, my question is whether or not it is fair for me to draw a line between, like, the bedroom and, quote-unquote, real life. And how do kinky couples make this work? And are we just incompatible despite the fact that we click on almost every other level? Some people into DS, dom-sub sex, do that in the bedroom only. It's a for-sex-only activity. It's a game they play when they're having sex. And some people do it, as they say, 24-7, where it really is shot through the relationship at all times, and, and, and sometimes more pronounced than others. Uh, but it exists as a sort of underlying current in the relationship, even outside the bedroom. And some people into DS find that that taking it outside the bedroom or having it be kind of always present or always tappable gives everyday ordinary activities a real erotic charge and they really enjoy it. And it tends to be worn lightly and with a certain degree of affection and humor, but it's always there that the dom can always assert themselves and the sub will submit and it can click in at any time. If that's not the kind of DS that you enjoy and at 20 years old and never having really explored kinky sex before and just really getting your, your feet wet, I'm not surprised that that's not something you would enjoy and it may not be something that you would ever enjoy. 
your boyfriend as the person who's introducing you to DS sex needs to not be such a fucking baby about it, right? You are going there with him in the bedroom. You have a boundary. You have a limit and you are allowed to have boundaries and limits. You have a limit that this DS stuff, you're not into it outside the bedroom. You're not into it outside of sex. That outside of sex, you are equals. And this is the way a lot of people into DS, BDSM, kink. This is the way a lot of them, I would say most of them, build their relationships, construct their sex lives, where this is bedroom activity, sex activity only. And that in the bedroom or in the dungeon or in the playroom or at parties, they are submissive or they are dominant. But outside the bedroom, outside the play party, they are equals. And you lay that out for him. This is what I'm up for right now. Maybe I'll feel differently in 10 years or five years or two years. Maybe in two years I'll be a lifestyle submissive and we can be 24-7. But right now, this is what I'm comfortable with. Here are my limits. The bedroom door, right? Inside the bedroom, when we're having sex, I will be submissive. I enjoy it. This is fun. This is new. Let's go. Outside the bedroom, don't play that card because you will be ignored. You say that he's feeling ignored. He tells you that he feels ignored when he tries to bust a dom move outside the bedroom and you rebuff him. Tell him, yes, that is what I am doing. Outside the bedroom, I will ignore that shit. That shit I enjoy inside the bedroom, outside the bedroom, I will ignore it because I'm not up for it. I'm not your slave. I'm not your submissive except when we're having sex. So, yeah, ignored. Ignored is what you will be when you bust those DS moves outside the bedroom. If you want to have some DS sex, if you're wanting to bust some Dom moves, let's get into the bedroom or get into the playroom or get into the play space and you can bust them all you like while we're having sex. Hey, Dan, love the podcast. This is a comment for the guy who went on an OkCupid date and had his date leave partway through because of his smoking. Now, I'm gay, so maybe it's a little bit different, but I've been on my share of OkCupid dates and I do think that there is a certain etiquette to letting someone down. I think in life in general, as an adult, you have to learn to kind of fake it. You know, it's not the end of the world to stare and finish out a drink or two just because someone's not going to be your soulmate. And while I think it's good for her to be honest and let you know that she's never going to beat you because of the smoking thing, I think she could have waited until the end of the day to tell you. She could have told you and then said, you know, but let's finish our drink. So the fact that she decided to do that, I think, kind of shows a little bit of poor character. And I don't think she's someone you would have wanted to date anyway. I think your advice to the drunken girl who seems to love the idea of her professor's intellect is really, really bad. I mean, it's just a terrible idea. I am married to partner with a professor for 15 years, and I know that the one thing that scares him the most is basically crazy women who will throw themselves at you. And I know that a lot of guys get really off on it, but what worries them the most is losing their jobs. For a professor, the worst thing for them is a woman with a crush because the one thing that can get them fired from a nice tenure-track position or a tenure position is having some kind of relationship with a woman or a woman making some kind of claim, it is really dangerous. And I know that all these young women find men's intellects very fascinating, but please, ladies, don't fuck it up. These guys, they spend at least a decade getting their degrees, getting their PhDs, and then seven years on the tenure track. And then that can all get totally screwed up just because some hot girl throws themselves at them. Don't do it. 
This is in response to the girl who had a brain boner for her professor, not sexual, but wanted to show her appreciation for his intellect. I've taught a few undergrads, and, you know, you can send a nice note after class is over for the semester and say, I appreciate your class. We really don't get that very often, and when we do, we love it. And to the professors who are so tired of hot undergrads getting all over them, uh, speak for yourself. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Join us in Portland on February 13th, Valentine's Day Eve, for a live taping of the Savage Lovecast at Revolution Hall in Portland. Information and tickets at portlandmercury.com slash unluckylove. Follow me on Twitter at Dan Savage. Follow Mike Burbiglia on Twitter at Burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.